you for joining us today here at Victory. At Victory Church, we are a community of authentic, spirit-led Christ followers transformed to walk in victory. Join us as we begin today's message. All right, so as the kids are going out, so if you are just now joining us, if you missed a few weeks, been saying this for the past few weeks, we've been in this series on the book of Judges. We've been kind of diving in uh, to this book. We're going to finish this book out. Uh, This is the fifth sermon in this series. Um, So if you're just now joining us, you can go back and listen to the the, the sermons uh, from the past. You're not going to be lost, though, so it's okay. So um, last week, we wrapped up Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7. So this week, we're going to be diving into Judges chapter 8. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and break it open, Judges 8. If you don't have your Bible, we're going to have it up on the screen, uh, but we've actually got the church app as well. Talked about this a lot. I want to I kind of quickly hit on this. So with the church app, if you have not gotten that, I highly, highly encourage you to get it. Um, it's available Apple and Android, thanks to our tech guru in the back, Josh. Um, so you can access that. Got a lot of really cool things on there. You can listen to past sermons. You can listen to, or you can uh, uh, read the Bible, listen to the Bible, different translations, Bible reading plans. There's a lot of really cool things, but something else that it has on there that's really uh, unique to sermons, so like this time right now, is there's a button on there on the app where you can go and it actually brings up all of the text, the same translation in order. So even if we kind of skip through, uh, skip down like a couple of verses or something, it's going to show that as we're going through it and has a place in that same spot where you can click on uh, notes and you can take notes. And it's all available on the app. But something else I want to hit on is it also has uh, life group questions on the app. Talked about that before. We got life group questions every single week. Got the hard copy in the back. You can pick that up. Uh, But then we also have it on the app. And this is why I encourage you to get it. Even if you're like, man, I don't know if I'm going to use that, right? Like I encourage you to get it because of those life group questions and also the sermon uh, notes and and the the text as well. Because that's what we're going to be diving into every single uh, Wednesday. It's sermon focused. So those are the questions. That way you don't have to worry like, what are they going to go over? What are the questions they're going to ask? You already know them. So I encourage you to get that, look at it, and be ready. Again, every Wednesday at 6 o'clock. So with that says, Judges 8, that's where we're going to be diving into, giving you guys a little time to get there. And so before we dive into the text, I got a question for you. So how many people, just raise your hand nice and high. If you are a perfect person, flawless, you've never made a mistake in your life, right? No struggles, no baggage whatsoever today. Uh, go ahead and raise your hand. And raise it high because you're perfect, right? So you... You don't have anything to hide, so don't, nothing to be ashamed of. Perfect people. I don't see any hands. I'm going to give you a moment. Perfect people. Nobody. Okay, nobody. So, I mean, that narrows it down. So, so if you came in here, if you came in here with struggles, with some, like, baggage and, and some flaws and issues in your life, right, guess what? You're in good company because every single one of us is flawed. Every single one of us has some, some kind of issues, some baggage in our life. So if that's you and you're like, man, are you talking about me? No, I'm talking about everybody. You are in good company. That's all of us. And so now that we've kind of got that narrowed down, we're all perf- imperfect, flawed, messed up people. Um, let's kind of broaden this out. We're going we're gonna to zoom out for a second. What about, what about Morganton, North Carolina? Any perfect people? Anybody know somebody, perfect person in Morganton, North Carolina? What, what about Burke County? Any perfect people, Burke County? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. What about, we're going to broaden out a, a little bit more. What about North Carolina, right? North Carolina, this great state in the South, right? Good state, good people. There's bound to be some perfect people in the entire state of North Carolina. It's a lot of people. But anybody know a perfect person? Flawless, never made a mistake, no struggle. Okay. What about great, sta- great country, USA, 50 states, ton of people? There's bound to be a few, right? Few perfect people. Anybody know one? Just one? So, so let's, just, let's just go all out. 
all out. Anybody know or heard of, just even heard of, one perfect, flawless, never made a mistake, no struggles, no baggage whatsoever in their life, one in the world, on the world, on planet Earth today, whether walking, sleeping, whatever, on planet Earth today, has anybody ever heard of one? Not one? Not one. Think about that for a second. Think about that. There are billions of people, billions on the planet Earth today, and there is not one perfect person. We all are surrounded no matter where you go. I don't care if you go to the gas station, if you go to work, if you go to home, the mall, wherever, man, your house, you are surrounded. If you have people around you, you are surrounded by imperfect, flawed, messed up people that have struggles and baggage in their life. And that's the point. That is the point. Every single one of us is flawed. Every single one of us has struggles in our life. And the problem is, guys, Hear me on this. The problem is when we look to the world, and specifically to other people, to fill these needs in our life, voids in our life. And I'm not talking about like encouragement. I'm talking about looking to a person to fill, be the main source of a need, a fulfillment, a desire in your life. Then what happens is time and time again, no matter who it is, I don't care, it's a spouse, it could be a kid, a parent, a mentor, a pastor, political leader, whoever, time and time again, they will fail us. No matter who it is, I don't care who you look to in the entire world, what they've accomplished, what they've done, how much they've helped you or other people, they will fail us time and time again. But on the reverse side of that, we will fail them time and time again. And it begs the question of why. Like, why is that? And the answer to that is because, man, we are all tore up from the floor up and we need Jesus. That's why. And more specifically, it's because Jesus is the only capable Savior and King. That's the big idea today. Jesus is the only capable Savior and King. He's the only one that's perfect, that has no flaws. He's the only one that will never fail us. He's the only one that can truly meet our needs, give us that fulfillment, that satisfaction, that hope, that peace that we long for. And ultimately, he's the only one that can truly save us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the scandalous gospel of grace and love, the fact that you, a perfect, loving Father, loving God, would send your son, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, to come down to this imperfect, messy, corrupt, crazy world full of struggles and baggage. Even in the middle of our sin against you, rebellion against you, you would come down into our mess and give us the opportunity to respond to you and accept your free gift of scandalous love and grace. And I thank you so much for that. And I pray that you help us to see the fact that this is so scandalous. This is an incredible good news message of what you have done for us, not anything that we have done to deserve it, because we could never deserve it. And I just thank you so much. I pray for the gift, the miracle of salvation today. Anybody that's here today that that has never responded to the gospel, I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would open their hearts and that you would help them to take that step of faith in your direction. Not in perfection, knowing it's not about being perfect. It's not about doing X, Y, and Z. It's not about reaching a certain level of sobriety. Knowing that it's just surrendered to your love and to your grace and what you've done for us. And I pray for that miracle of salvation. I pray that you would 
Help every single one of us. You would grow us closer to you. Make us and mold us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take over this sermon today. Speak in me, speak through me. Pray all this in your name. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, uh, so last week, we hit on this very unlikely, very unqualified man that God raised up, God used, named Gideon, and he used him to save an entire nation. And one of the things that we found out about this guy is the fact that he, is, he was a doubting coward. Like this dude, I mean, an extremely uh, doubtful man, extremely scared man. In, f- in fact, whenever we're first introduced to this guy, he is literally in a hole in the ground, like hiding from nobody, because nobody's around. So this dude is essentially in a hole in the ground when we're first introduced to him, hiding from his own shadow. And he doubts God time and time again, keeps on, keeps on testing God as if he's just trying to get out of what God is trying to call him to. So he's a doubting coward, but God leads him uh, to save the entire nation of Israel. And he ends up leading, God uses him to lead three other, 300 other doubting cowards into battle against 130,000 enemy troops, 130,000 Midianites and Amalekite uh, soldiers that were working together. He leads them into battle against these guys. But what happens is it's a miracle. It's an incredible story. Go back to listen to the sermon. Go back and read it. Incredible story. I'm not going to go into all the details. But they don't even have to like draw their swords and actually fight these guys at first. Like God literally uses them to scare these guys so much. He scares them into a like this paranoia where 130,000 enemy troops are so terrified. Nobody is actually, I mean, even trying to attack them yet. They're so terrified, though, that they end up running away, sprinting off in the opposite direction. And in the process of sprinting off, trying to get away, they're actually killing each other off. Like it is, they're just crazy, just this paranoia. They're scared to death, thinking to themselves, if I don't get out of here, we're all going to die. I'm going to die as well. So they're killing each other off, they're they're running, sprinting in the opposite direction, and that's kind of where we end last week. And then what happens at the end of chapter 7, the beginning of of chapter 8, we see Gideon sending some of these men, some of the 300 men that were with him that he was leading, out as messengers. And he sends these men to the hill country of Ephraim. Something we have to understand about Ephraim is it was a very kind of powerful uh, tribe, people group, town, if you will, uh, one of the most powerful uh, towns or, or tribes in the entire nation of Israel, right? And, and so he sends these messengers out to the hill country of Ephraim. And what they're doing is, first of all, they're letting them know what just happened. Like, like hey, this is what just happened. Like, like God just, uh, you know, I mean, these guys are so scared. They're running away. God just drew them all out. They're killing each other. It's crazy. This is what's going on. It's awesome. And then the other reason, on top of letting them know what's going on, is he needs their help. And so he sends these guys out to ask for help because what's happening is some of these guys are getting away. Some of these, these enemy soldiers that survived didn't get killed in the process of running away. They're running away, and he's asking these guys from the hill country of Ephraim, these Ephraimites, to block them off so that they can't escape, especially some of the like bigwig leaders. He doesn't want them to escape and then come together, regroup, and then try to attack them later. He's like, no, let's end this, cut them off, and let's take care of business. So that's what he's asking for, for help with. And so we see, as we keep on like reading down the Ephraimites, they respond. They, they actually kind of block these guys off. They end up taking down two kind of key leaders uh, these um, princes is what the text calls. So they're essentially like military commanders. So think of like a couple of generals they've taken down. And so every, everything up to this point in time, as we're reading on down the line through the text, it seems like everything's going great. 
Well, like, I mean, I mean, look what God has done. He is th- these Midianites, and they were very corrupt. They were under this corrupt regime of these people, harshly oppressed them. And now all of a sudden they're taking all these guys down. It looks like they're working together, Gideon, these 300 men, along with the Ephraimites. It's like everything's going great. This is awesome. But then as we keep on reading, we soon discover very quickly that everything isn't great at all. It's not even close to great. And the first thing that we run into, the first problem we see is that the Ephraimites are actually calling Gideon out. Right after they take down these other two guys, and it looks great, they're blocking these guys off, then we see them calling Gideon out. And they, they aren't just mad with this dude, they are furious. Like, like they, are, they are ready to like pummel this guy. And at first it's like, wh- why? What in the world are you mad about, man? Like, like, I mean, think about what God just did. And we talked about how oppressive the Midianites were last week, right? Almost like these desert bandits, they would go out, they would, they would steal whatever they wanted. They would take crops, they would take livestock. And so, I mean, historians say it was so bad that the Israelites were dying in mass, you know? And, and it also was so bad because they were dying in mass because of starvation and the oppression of the Midianites. A lot of the Israelites were going up and living in caves. Like, imagine raising your kids in a cave because you're hiding from these people that are so evil and corrupt it would be better to live your life and raise your kids in a cage in a cave that that's how bad this was but but now all of a sudden i mean god has like given them essentially this enemy he's he's like handed it over to him like the victory is yours but these guys are mad at getting it's like what in the world are they mad about but here's why here's why it's it's dumb it's almost like this backyard like school ground type of fight it's just dumb what they're mad about is the fact that they didn't get to be a part of the very beginning of the battle. That's literally it. That's, that's what they're mad about. Like, they don't even really acknowledge at all the fact that God, what God just did, and they just freed them from this oppressive regime of the Midianites. They are mad because they wanted to be a part of the beginning of the battle. And really the core issue here is they wanted to be there so they could get the credit for the victory. That's what they really wanted. That's why they were mad. They felt like they couldn't get the credit for the victory. And so what we have to understand about these Ephraimites is the fact that they were, again, they were very powerful, very powerful people group within the nation of Israel. But the power that they had wasn't enough. They wanted more. They just wanted more and more and more, so much so that it blinded them to the blessing that God had done. He just handed the enemies over to them. They were on this power-hungry trip, obsessed with power and wanted more and more, and that's exactly what happens. Like when we, when we don't give power and authority, or maybe it's like a leadership role, whatever it might be, to the one that it actually belongs to, because ultimately, even if we sit on like seats of power or authority or whatever you know, credit is given to us, ultimately it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. And when we don't give it to God, then what happens is we get lost in this crazy cycle of wanting more and more and more. And essentially bending our knees, so to speak, to the little g, fake, functional savior God, this idol of a God called power, rather than the one true God of the universe. And that's exactly what's happening to these Ephraimites. That they are bending their will, giving their worship and their commitment over to the true little g God, the idol of their life, which is their hunger, their thirst for more and more power, which is why they're so blinded. But everything that God just did, that's all they care about. For seven years, they were oppressed by these guys. 
That's all they care about. And so then in this scene, they're, they're calling Gideon out. They're furious with this guy. And Gideon does something, as we keep on reading, that from the outside looking in, it looks like Gideon is, a, is becoming a great leader. It's almost like, dude, you just grew up overnight, man. This is awesome. Like, he looks like he's getting it, and he, he's, like, very respectful in what he says. It, it looks like he's being very diplomatic and, and like a peacemaker, like a humble leader almost. And, and what he does, he's like, oh, no, I didn't do anything. Like, look what you guys did. You took these other two princes, these command, like, generals right down. Like, like you guys deserve credit. Like, I didn't do anything. Look what you did, right? And it looks like he's being this great humble leader but what we soon find out is that Gideon in this scene he's not being a great leader in fact Gideon's never actually been a great leader he was a doubting coward that was used by God and in this scene he's not being a great leader either because as we keep on diving into this text which we're we're about to do what we're going to find out is Gideon actually had a hidden agenda so what we're going to do we're going to dive into this text we're going to find out what this hidden agenda was and what this dude did. Check this out. Judges chapter 8, starting with verse 4. It says, Gideon and the 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. He said to the men of Succoth, yes, that was a name, town, please give me some loaves of bread to the troops under my command, because they are exhausted. For I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. But the princes of Succoth asked, are Zeba and Zalmanah now in your hands, that we should give bread to your army? Gideon replied, very well. When the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalmanah over to me, I will, catch this, check out what he says, I will tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. He went from there to Penuel and asked the same thing from them. The men of Penuel answered just as the men of Succoth had answered. He also told the men of Penuel, when I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Man, that is harsh. So up to this point, Gideon has gone to three different towns, essentially, these tribes, right? And all kind of under Israelite control, like this is people, right? And and he's wanting help from them. But in every single town, every single tribe that he goes to, what's happening is he's getting the same response. They essentially, they don't respect him as a leader. They're not going to help him. They don't respect him as a leader. They completely disrespect this dude, right? And, And on one hand, it's like, why? Why in the world would you, I mean, look what God just did. Again, we just talked about it. Why would you not respect him? But then if you remember, remember from last week who this is. And especially it's, it's 6, chapter 6, I think verse 15. It talks about, I mean, who this guy was from. He was from the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. He was a nobody. And, I mean, this dude had no qualification whatsoever, the least likely in the entire nation to be raised up and used as a leader. So and on that, from that perspective, it's like, okay, that kind of makes sense because these people are like, dude, who are you? What are you talking? Nuh-uh, get out of here. And these two guys you're chasing now, where are they at? What are you talking? Who are you, man? No, we don't respect you. We're not going to help you. And that's essentially what is happening here. And so he goes to these three different towns. He gets to the first one, Ephraim, goes to the Ephraimites. And we talked about that just a moment ago. These guys are furious because they're prideful. And, um, and so he does this thing where he looks like a very diplomatic uh, peacemaker. He looks like a great leader, right? Looks like a really humble, great leader, and he handles it very diplomatically. But then he gets to these other two towns, Succoth and Penuel. And what does he do? He acts the complete opposite, the complete polar opposite. Not only is he respectful, not, not respectful, and not a peacemaker, not diplomatic, 
but he actually threatens these guys. And not just a little bit. He is like threatening them very harshly. I mean, for one, the, the people in Succoth, he literally threatens to, to, to catch us. He threatens to very harshly um, uh, uh, um, torture them. Forgot the word for a second. Torture them. That's what he's threatening to do to them. He wants to, and not just a little bit. I mean, this would be extremely excruciating, extremely painful. And he's talking about doing it publicly, out in front of everybody, including their family members, their wives, their kids, publicly humiliating these people and torturing them. And then with this other town, he's threatening to destroy part of the town. I mean, so it's like, what in the world is going on? I mean, you see this, this very big contradiction, polar opposite, and you're like, what is up with this, dude? Why are you, why are you being all respectful to these other people over here, um, you know, and, and then you know, they have the power, but then when it comes to these other people over here that don't have as much power, that they're kind of a, you know, on the lower, lower part of the totem pole when it comes to politically and powerfully, why are you like essentially just acting as a tyrant? What is going on? And what we, what we have to understand is Gideon is doing this on purpose. Like he knows exactly what he's doing right now. Because what he's doing is he's going up to these people that have a lot of political pull. They have a lot of power. And he's intentionally trying to act. He's putting on a show. He's acting like this humble leader. He's acting like a peacemaker, like a diplomat. In other words, he's trying to flatter these people. That's what he's doing intentionally. To gain their respect. That's what he's doing. And then when it comes to these other people that don't have a lot of power, that don't have a lot of political pull, when they don't respect them, he essentially just bulldozes right past them. And the reason, ultimately, what he wants to do, what he cares about more than anything else, is gaining political power and political control. That's what he wants. It's almost like this, this corrupt politician. That's kind of how Gideon's acting in this scene. And when he does this, what he shows us as the readers, as we're able to, to read through this and see what Gideon's doing, he really shows us, man, the God that he's actually serving over and above the one true God of the universe. Like the God that, that called him and, and saved him and then used him and continues to use him. But really, he's not so much serving the God of the universe, is he? Because really, He's bending his will. He's bending his wants, his desires, everything that he is doing over to the will and the power to the fake little G God of power. That's what he longs for. That's what he wants more than anything else, even more than God himself, is this dude wants control and he wants power. And he's bending his knee, essentially his will over to it. He is giving over his commitment and his worship, essentially everything that he has, everything that he, he, he is, over to power. And, and what's so sad about this is it's not even been that long since that battle happened. And everything that God is doing is actually still in the middle of this battle. And he's already turned his back on God, essentially forgotten who the true hero and savior of this story is, and not only that, but, but who the credit and the power and the authority actually belongs to, which isn't a man. It's definitely not him or a group of people. It's God. But he's completely turned his back on God, and he's obsessed with power. Let's keep on going. Check out what he does next. This is verse 10. It says, it says Now Zeba and Zalmana were in Karkar, and with them was their enemy, uh, was their army, I'm sorry, of about 15,000 men who were all those left of the entire army of the Ketamites. Those 
who had been killed were 120,000 armed men. Gideon traveled on the caravan route east of Noba and Jagbaha and attacked their army while the army felt secure. Ziba and Zalmanna fled and he pursued them. He captured these two kings of Midian and routed the entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez. He captured a youth from the men of Succoth, check this out, and interrogated him. The youth wrote down for him the names of the 77 leaders and elders of Succoth. Then he went to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna. You taunted me about them, saying, Are Ziba and Zalmunna now in your power that we should give bread to your exhausted men? So he took the elders of the city, and he took some thorns and briars from the wilderness, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. He also tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So what we see is Gideon was true to his word. He was true to his promise. First of all, that, that he was going to chase these guys down, that he was going to get these guys, Zeba and Zalmanah, which he does. But then he was also true to his word when it came to what he said he was going to do to these other two towns and the fact that he was threatening them. And he did exactly what he said he was going to do and even more. He went to Succoth and he tortures these men horribly tortures these men and publicly and they're public leaders as well so he's torturing these these leaders in this town humiliating them from them in front of the people that they're supposed to be leading including again think about this being humiliated publicly tortured horribly in front of your kids in front of your your wives and that's what he does so this man that that was called by god used by god and did all this stuff, and God did all this stuff through him, is now become a torturer. And then he goes to Penuel, and he does exactly what he said he was going to do there, but then even more. Because he destroys part of their town. Remember, he said he was going to knock down that tower. So he destroys part of their town. But then on top of that, he goes even further. It's like this dude is so thirsty for power. He is so obsessed that he wants more and more and more. And even when he gets a little bit, just like that's what happens when we don't give it over to God. It's not enough. You want more and more and more. And that's what's happening. He did exactly what he said. He's already tortured these men. That was horrible enough publicly in front of their families, everybody else. And then on top of that, he goes to this other town. He destroys part of their town. But then he does something else. He then becomes a murderer because he straight up murders innocent men. These, did, these men did nothing other than say, we don't want to help you, and they didn't respect him. He murdered these men. So this guy, Gideon, has now completely turned his back on God again. He has turned his back on God, and he is still just so obsessed with power. He is willing to do anything and everything. It doesn't matter what it is in order to get more. Let's keep on going. Check out what happens next. Verse 22. It says, Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, Check this out. I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And so we get to this scene, thinking about what just happened. We get to this scene, and if you just kind of like read through it and, and, and you get to this part and you stop there, at first glance, it looks like, man, this dude's getting it. 
Like, man, man, maybe he like repented. Maybe he felt remorseful for what he did and he repented. He was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I did. I was so power hungry. And, and then he turned, maybe he turned back to God. You know, it's almost like looking like that's what he did. And then now he's calling all these people to turn back to God. And almost like he's trying to give him credit, right? Because what, what the people are doing, again, they wanted him to rule over them. And it doesn't use this word king, but that's essentially what they're wanting him to become. Assume the power and the authority, the rule over them as a king would. But catch this, they already have a king. They already have a savior and a king. Who's their, their king and their savior? It's God. It's, God. it's the Lord. And anytime the Old Testament refers to the Lord, by the way, that's pre-incarnate Jesus. So in other words, Jesus is their king. Jesus is their Savior, And it looks like, again, from the outside looking in, it looks like Gideon is getting it, that he's pointing it back to, to, to God. And he's saying, look, no, I'm not going to rule over you. No, we already have a ruler. In other words, we already have a king. I'm not going to be your king. And he points him back in the direction of God. And, so, and it almost like, it reminds me of this other guy, this other leader, this, this like godly man that we see generations past before Gideon's time called Joshua. Where Joshua, you remember the Joshua in the battle of Jericho, he leads the Israelites into the promised land for the very first time. They step into that land, win this victory, and then Joshua says that epic statement, sometimes we'll have it like in our houses or something, you know, it's choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Like Joshua is the one who said that. And it looks like it almost mirrors that in a sense. It's like, man, Gideon's get it. He's going to be this godly guy, this godly leader, right? Kind of looks the same. But what we very, very quickly, actually immediately after this find out, is it's nothing like that at all. At first glance, it looks like that, but it's nothing like that. Because the difference is Joshua actually, first of all, he actually um, believed and was genuine in what he said. He was genuine when, when, he, when he said that. But then the other more important part of that is he lived it out. He actually lived it out. And, and not in perfection, Again, no perfect people. We just talked about that. There are no perfect people. Joshua, all these other people in the Bible that we read about, they're the same way. There's no perfect people, but even through his imperfections, he still trusted the Lord and he still followed him all throughout his entire life. So he was honest when he said that. He lived it out, but when it comes to Gideon, Gideon was nothing like that. Because what we're going to find out is Gideon's story is actually, sadly, a tragedy. Check out what happens next. Verse 22. It says, Then he said to them, This is Gideon. And remember, remember what he just did. The people want him to assume rule, assume power over them. In other words, they're not saying the word king, but that's what they're wanting. They're wanting him to essentially act like their king, even though God is already their king. They already have a king and a savior, but they're wanting Gideon to assume that role and raise him up essentially as an idol, right? Gideon says, No, you already got a king. Keeping that in mind. Then he said to them, right after this, let me make a request of you. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we agree to give them. So they spread out a cloak and everyone threw an earring from his plunder in it. So, so hold up just a second. Hold up just a second. Just to make sure we're all on the same page and we don't miss what just happened here. So Gideon literally just said, hey, look, look uh, I'm, I'm not going to be your king. I'm not going to rule over you, even though that's what they wanted. God's our king. He's in control, almost like he's surrendering control and authority over to God. But then right after that, immediately falling, what does he do? He then assumes the power and the authority of a king because he does exactly what a king would do. He's essentially act, asking for a royal tribute. 
Like, that's what this is. I mean, like, the golden earrings, like, like you know, hey, I'm not going to be your king, but, you know, hey, g- give, me a, give me a royal tribute. I'll take a royal tribute. That's what he's doing. And when he does this, again, he's assuming this power and this control over them. And what he's doing is he's asking them, essentially, to submit to him as if he is their king. It's this double standard. And the question then becomes why? Like, why did he say this? Right, and then like, like, no, I don't want to be your, I don't want to be your ruler, but you know, God is our ruler. You know, I, you know, I'm not going to rule over you. But then, right after that, he then assumes the power and the authority that he just said he didn't want. He literally just contradicted himself through his actions. Why did he do that? And the answer is because of this. Because when Gideon said that, he wasn't actually surrendering over power and control to God. What he was actually doing is he was using false humility and flattery in order to raise himself up, in order to boost himself up in front of God's people. That's what he was doing. He was using false humility, flattery, intentionally, essentially lying to these people in order to boost himself up really into God's place in their lives. And don't miss another part of this text, too, where the people gave him the credit for, for being their savior and their deliverer, right? That deliverer, savior, kind of the same thing in that sense. It's like looking to him as the, yeah, thank you for saving you. Look what you did. You saved us. You're the one who, who, who defeated the Midianites. You did all of this. They're giving him the credit, but notice what he does not do, ever. He never says, nah, uh-uh. I didn't do that. This dude was a coward. He didn't even want to do it. He kept on trying to get out of it and was doubting, giving all these laundry rules. This is why you don't want me. I can't do this. And the entire time he was stumbling through it. And even when he got up to, I mean, the 300 men got up, they didn't even have to do anything. God did all of it. This man literally did nothing other than doubt God the entire time and was scared to death and just reluctantly kind of followed through. That's it. But he gives absolutely no credit whatsoever to God. He takes all of the credit. And here's why. Because ultimately, he wanted the credit for what God did in order to gain the power and the control that only God deserved. He wanted the power and the control that only God deserved for this victory. Let's keep on going. We're going to end with this text, verses 26 through 27. It says, The weight of the gold earrings he requested was 43 pounds of gold in addition to the crescent ornaments and ear pendants, the purple garments on the kings of Midian and the chains on the neck of their camels. Gideon made an ephod from all of this and he put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Then all Israel, catch this, check this word out, prostituted themselves by worshiping it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. So, man, this story just gets worse and worse and worse. You know, I mean, like, go back to the beginning and remember what happened in the very beginning. You know, Judges chapter 6, we're introduced to this man, Gideon. He's in this pit, dude. He's literally hiding in this hole in the ground, essentially from his own shadow. And he put there by his own fears, his own insecurities, his struggles in life. And that's what was keeping him there. But God called him out of it. God saved him. And then he used him to save an entire nation. And literally, it hasn't even been that long, and look what he's already done. 
He has already turned his back on God. He has already tried to take the credit and the authority for what God did. He then essentially steals from God's people because he assumes this role that he doesn't have the power and the authority to do something that he didn't have the power and the authority to do by taking this stuff from the Israelites. So he stole from God's people, used what he took from them. He made, he fashioned an ephod, which would have been put used uh, for, for the um, priest, but he used it essentially as an idol. And then on, on top of that, he takes the, the entire nation of Israel and he leads them astray with this thing to essentially worship it and really to worship him instead of God. That's what this dude did after everything that God has done for him. And it hasn't even been that long. And this scene with the earrings, these golden earrings, and he takes them and he fashions them into this ephod and he uses it as an idol and leads this entire nation astray to turn their backs on God and worship it and really him in its place it kind of reminds us too of this other scene with the Israelites like generations before Gideon back in the wilderness, Mount Sinai, Moses is up on the mountain, he's receiving the Ten Commandments, but the Israelites, just like with Gideon, they take these golden earrings and they fashion it into a golden calf and they worship it in the place of God, just like with Gideon and the Israelites in this scene. Because what we have to understand is generation after generation after generation, we continue to do the same thing. We continue to do the same thing. And it may not look the same. Like you may not have a golden, I hope you don't have a golden calf in your backyard. If you do, let's talk, you know, that, that's a little weird. But if you, hopefully you don't have a golden calf in your backyard or like, you know, a shrine or something in the closet, you know, or a Asherah pole. We talked about that, you know, yeah, last week yet, and Asherah's dad had a Asherah pole. So it may not look like that. For you, it might look like, might look like power. It might look like control or your agenda or goals for your life or success, money, you know, power, whatever. It might, might even be people that you put up on a pedestal in the place of God or, 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 or like some kind of material possessions. If I had a bigger house, if I had a car, if I had this, whatever. What we have to understand is at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it looks like. An idol is not just defined by something that's like a carved image or a statue. At the end of the day, it is all the same regardless of what it looks like because what we are doing is we are surrendering our worship and our commitment over to it, whatever it is, in place of, over and above the one true God of the universe, the only one that actually deserves our worship and our commitment. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it is, it doesn't matter what it is. It's still replacing worship and commitment for the God of the universe, an idol, a little G God in our lives that everything else in our life completely revolves around. And there's something else in this scene, this parallel that we see in this text with the Israelites and what they do with Gideon is they start to look at him and try to elevate him to this point of like a king and really like this savior in their lives. What they're doing is they're, they're elevating him to the point of God and really beyond, like replacing God in their lives to meet their needs, to fulfill them, to save them, uh, to, 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 to be everything that they need. That's what they're doing with Gideon right in this scene. But guys, how often do we do the same thing? How often do we look to other people in our lives, putting these people on a pedestal 
And we, we don't like using these words like, you know, that, that's my savior, right? Or, or, you know, we don't like using those words. We don't like to think about it in those terms. But listen to me. It doesn't matter what you, words you use. In the end, if you're looking to that person to meet some need, some core need that you have, to bring you ultimate fulfillment of satisfaction no matter what, that is what you are doing. Regardless of the word that you want to use, how often do we do the same thing, man? Well, we do it with, I mean, it could be a spouse. It could be like a, a coworker, a friend, a kid, you know, uh, you know, pastor type role, mentor, political figures. We do it all the time. And as soon as, as soon as they fail us, which they do, and they will time and time again, and we will fail them in return, as soon as we, they fail us, it feels like our whole world is crumbling. Like everything is just crumbling to pieces because they're, they're revealed for what they've act, they're actually are and what they've been really the entire time, which is imperfect, flawed, and completely incapable of saving us and meeting our needs. Completely incapable. Because it, what we have to understand, guys, is the truth of the gospel is not the fact that we are a bunch of perfect people that have been put together on this planet and that together we can meet each other's needs, we can fulfill each other, we can give each other this peace, satisfaction, fill those voids in our life, right? That's not the truth of the gospel. Because if that were the truth of the gospel, then there would be no need for salvation, there'd be no need for a cross, and there would be no need for a perfect savior, Jesus Christ, at all. The truth of the gospel, though, is the fact that we are all broken, Every single one of us, we are all flawed. We are all imperfect, incapable people that desperately need a perfect Savior, which is only found in and through Jesus Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ is the only capable Savior and King. And guys, listen, it's, when it's only when we surrender our life, our will over to the care of Jesus Christ that we can find the salvation for our soul that we all need, along with the hope, the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the peace that every single one of us longs for, only in and through Jesus. So as the, the worship team comes up, let me go ahead and invite them up. There's a question that I want every single one of us to wrestle with and to be honest with ourselves about. And here's the question. Who is king in your life? Who, who is the savior in, in your life? Is it some kind of a person that you've been looking to? Is it maybe a spouse? You know, coworker, kid, whoever? And be honest about that because a lot of times it's so easy for us as Christians, people that are followers of Christ to say, oh, no, no, Jesus is Lord of my life. But I ain't talking about like, you know, some areas of your life. I'm talking about every single aspect of your life. Is it a person is it, is it maybe like a thing? Maybe you're like your thirst for power. It's like, you know what? I've been following Jesus in these areas of my life, but when it comes to maybe my, like my finances or when it comes to my future, you know, I'm really scared. So I, I find myself actually holding on to this person or to this thing or to the pursuit of power, whatever it may be. Possession. That's the question. Who is the king? Who is the savior in your life? And not just in some areas, but every single area of your life. Is it Jesus? And if you're here today, if you're somebody that's never responded to the gospel, your answer has never been, Jesus is a savior in my life. Jesus is king. Jesus rules in my life. But God's working on your heart and you're like, you know what, man? 
I think I'm ready to make him Lord in my life. I think I want to respond to this, this gospel message. If that is you today, then listen, man, please don't wait. It's not about you being perfect. It's not about you, you know, uh, doing X, Y, and Z or, you know, reaching a certain level, whatever it is in your life. It's about the fact that you are imperfect and you need a perfect Savior. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So I want to encourage you to step out, to trust him. And he will meet you right where you're at. We say this all the time, and he will save you right where you're at. And for us as Christians, as followers of Christ, be honest with yourself. Be transparent. Ask God to reveal, what are the areas in my life that maybe I haven't actually put you first? What are some areas in my life where I have some other functional saviors, some idols in my life? And he'll reveal those things to you. So as we worship, I'm going to encourage everybody to stand together, and we're going to sing. But as we worship you respond with whatever he puts on your heart. And we've got a prayer team here. So if you come up and you want prayer, we, there's a lot of people I would love to pray with you. We've got some other people. If you have other questions too, you're wondering, you know, I want some more, some more information about this Jesus, about this gospel. And this is the place to ask it. This is the place to ask it. So as we sing, you come up. Guys, first off, I just want to say thank you for joining us today for the sermon. And uh, whether you're somebody that's come to our church or you're somebody that lives locally, you go to another church, maybe you don't even live here. Um, I just want I just want to say first and foremost, thank you for joining us. And uh, I want to encourage you to, to respond in some way today. When we hey guys, hear a sermon, when we read the sermon, when we... Um, it, whatever it may may be, and the point uh, whether you're a church is, or you're somebody um, forgot to that lives locally, you go to another church, way, maybe you don't even live. And so, if you are a Christian, um, you've been a seasoned Christian, you know the Lord already. I want to encourage and, uh, you. The way that we can respond is just by you know asking Him, God. Convictions hey guys, that first off, I've us today for uh, the based sermon. On this sermon. Um, the whatever it to me, what do you want me to do? And, and uh, whether you're church that, maybe or you're somebody an area of your that lives locally, you've been holding to speak to, to us in some um, way, and, shape, and, and you haven't been giving so it to him. If you are I a want Christian, to encourage you to give that uh, to him and step out in faith. Um, and you know, the way that we can respond is just by, you know, asking God, God really what do you want me to do? With the convictions that um, you're giving you know, me, whatever it uh, based may be on for this you, sermon, it's the way that you're speaking to I want to encourage you to respond. What do you want me to do? To and then respond and to that. Maybe it's an area of your life that you've been holding on to. If you were somebody and you haven't been given listen to this and you've step out and you've never or maybe it's it been impacted um, you know, by the gospel some unbelief that you've had, had and God has, and and God has really convicted you of some things, things. A little bit. Then uh, based on this sermon different for everyone I want to encourage you to respond and throughout the book of to Acts, God and, and um, step in his direction and, and the other thing too uh, is if, shows us if that, you were somebody you know, that, that response maybe you've like. listened so to this and you've never responded to that gospel maybe it means it's just you know that you've had and Stern in your heart, you know, turn from uh, making based on this sermon. Now, I want to encourage you to turn that gospel message and just give and throughout the book of Acts. And then history on top of that response, uh, it shows us that you know, what that response looks like. So, number one is to repent. And, and this word repent, all that means is just to turn from, you know, our sinful ways, our sinful and the importance of and all these the other things in life, God, to the and turn self. to God, and then and just um, give Him birth our to life, our this new life in Christ. After the uh, we die with Christ, it comes something else. Raised it's called baptism to walk in this new and, life. And baptism and it's a is so key. It's so important. So I want to encourage you if you have made that ways, commitment to Christ, based on this sermon, 
Um, um, it's this symbol of take death that next step to the old self somewhere, and, and then if you have um, a local church, you want to go be baptized. Uh, this new life in Christ. Do that. After the um, if you don't with to be Christ able to, to the old self and we are raised um, with Christ to, to walk in this new life to do that, to, and it's a command from Jesus so I want to encourage you if you have made that means way to seek our sinful as well uh, based on so. this sermon it's the symbol of we are praying to the for old you. self. I want you to know that and you were loved and you were prayed birth for. To, uh, so if you're ready to take you to that next step in your relationship with Christ, love to be able to celebrate. If you want to take that next step with us, then we are we were welcoming to do that to talk with some links that we're going to provide counsel on what this means to seek discipleship. And again, if you if you have any prayer requests, I encourage you to do those things. We would love to talk to pray with you. We would love to talk for you. I want you to know that excited about taking this next step with you. So if you're that, um, if you don't have step in your relationship with the church, we would love to be with Christ, um, and be able to.